If you got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of James. I can take my Bible. I've read James so much here lately that I can take my Bible and just flip it open and it goes right to James every time. It doesn't matter it doesn't matter how I flip it, it goes right to James. It's starting to it's starting to work out. But anyway, last time I last time I taught, I know it's been a while, but the last time I taught we covered verses one through six in the fourth chapter of James. We talked about what it meant to be a friend with the world and how that one who is a friend of the, with the world is an enemy with Yahweh. We talked about how one's desire to be worldly creates all kinds of hostility within them and that what was on the inside would lead to the outside and it would eventually cause wars between them and the people that they're surrounded by. James said that the reason we war amongst ourselves was because we desired something that we didn't have. We desired to have all the goodness of Yahweh, and yet we didn't even ask for it. And even when we did ask for it, we asked for it with selfish intentions. And for that reason, we would never receive it. See, the gifts of Yahweh are righteous gifts. Everything from Yahweh is pure, perfect, and without blemish. It's whole, it's lacking nothing, and most of all, it's free. It can't be bought or obtained by money. You can't wager for it or cheat somebody out of it. It can't be stolen can't be earned it has to be given by the creator himself so because of this james makes a statement of greater grace in verse six of the fourth chapter he's saying even though you're wicked even though you haven't received the gifts of yahweh you haven't received his wisdom or his understanding you haven't received the gift of the spirit don't give up there's still hope in verse six he gives greater grace in other words even though you're wretched he has a far greater grace even though you're a filthy rag, he has more soap. He has a greater grace. This is a wonderful promise, no matter how your life is. Maybe you haven't passed some of the tests that we've been going through in this epistle. Maybe you're a, you're a hearer of the word and you're not a doer of it. Maybe you have earthly wisdom instead of heavenly wisdom. But no matter how sinful you are, basically James is saying, don't give up. He gives a greater grace. As awesome as that promise is of the greater grace, don't overlook the second part of verse 6. James says, because he has a greater grace, it's written that Yahweh resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The greater grace is for the humble, not for the proud. Yes, his grace is far greater than any sin that you've ever had in your life or ever committed, but it's for the humble, the repentant sinner. And because it's written that he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble, you need to do what? Just like we talked about last time, you need to do everything that it says between verses 7 through 10. So let's read verses 7 through 10 in James chapter, chapter 4. Starting in verse 7, it says, Therefore submit to Yahweh, or to Elohim, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to Elohim, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded people. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Your laughter must change to mourning and your joy to sorrow. Humble yourselves before Yahweh and he will exalt you. See that little word at the beginning of verse 7, therefore? Well, Matthew taught me something a long time ago. When you see this word, you need to ask, what is there for? What this word means is for this reason. See, in verse 6, he says, Elohim resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So verse 7 should read, For this reason, submit to Elohim. 
Why do we why do we submit to Yahweh? Because he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He's only going to give his grace to those who are humble. If you want that all-sufficient grace, you have to submit to Yahweh. Do you know what the word submit means? It means to be put under, to be subject to, to submit to one's control. You voluntarily submit yourself. You voluntarily give it. Now, this is a willing conscience submission to a sovereign king. That's the idea here. It's a loyal allegiance to the creator of heaven and earth, and there's no middle ground here. This is a complete and total submission to the one true Yahweh. The reason that James says to resist the devil in the second part of verse 7 is because by submitting yourself to Yahweh, you automatically resist the devil. I told you in the last sermon that you couldn't serve two masters. Think about it. It's not that you're not tempted by the things of the world, but it's that when you, when you only love Yahweh and his ways, everything else becomes gross to you. It's just grotesque. You will automatically hate the things that are not of Yahweh, and you'll, you'll love the things that are of Yahweh. It's not that, that the world doesn't go on around you. When you sell out to Yahweh, when your allegiance is completely with Yahweh, you can't love the things that are wicked. This, it's not in you. Jerry was talking about it earlier when he was up here testifying. He's glad that he don't have a heart to want to be an adulteress. It's because he loves Yahweh. Yahweh, doesn't, Yahweh don't, don't instill a spirit within people that loves adultery. So we sell out to Yahweh. I think about I think about David. I'm reminded of David and Goliath. And remember what David said about Goliath. Goliath's been talking smack for about 40 days now. He's down on the battlefield and he is just running his mouth to the Israelite army. And that's all all until David gets there. And, and David says he hears him out there and he's running his mouth and he says, "Who is this uncircumcised heathen that defies the name of the living mighty one?" See, David didn't care how big Goliath was. You know, up until the time that he fights him, David David don't he he sees Goliath down there as a giant, but he doesn't care because his allegiance is so sold out to Yahweh. He stands for Yahweh so strong it doesn't matter how big Goliath is. And then when he gets down there and he gets ready to fight Goliath, he says, You come at me with a dagger and a sword, but I come at you in the name of Yahweh. David's allegiance belonged to Yahweh. When you submit totally to Yahweh, you automatically take your stand against the devil and all his cohorts. You automatically stand against him. Yahweh's enemies become your enemies. You exchange your old Lord for your new Lord, your old master for your new one. Satan no longer has a hold on you when you fall under the lordship of Christ and under the sovereignty of Yahweh. What a promise, huh? So the first thing James tells us to do in order to receive his grace is submit to Yahweh. And by doing so, the devil has no choice but to flee. Let's look at verse 8. Verse 8, draw near to Yahweh and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded people. So the second thing he says is draw near to Yahweh and he'll draw near to you. Draw near to Yahweh and he'll draw near to you. He's just asking you to make a step. James says draw near to Yahweh and he'll, he'll automatically close the gap. That's a Hebrew thought. That's an understanding in Hebrew. All the Hebrew people would understand this. Remember who James is talking to here. Back in chapter 1, we established that James is talking to a multitude of scattered Israelite people. They're brothers to James by lineage, and they would have definitely understood the concept of drawing near. They knew exactly what this meant. The term draw near would have been originally associated probably with the priest and the priestly function. In Exodus chapter 19 and verse 22, Yahweh says, Let the priests who come near to me sanctify themselves. These were Yahweh's special people that he set apart within the nations of Israel to do his ministering to his people. 
They were, they were to be clean and pure before Yahweh. They entered the temple to do his work, and they were to sanctify themselves. In other words, they were the ones who drew near to Yahweh to make atonement for the people of Israel. Remember in Leviticus, I think it's, uh, I think it's chapter 10, Moses tells, tells Aaron, this is, this is what Yahweh meant when he said, I will show you my holiness to those who are near me, and I will reveal my glory before all the people. He's talking about the priest here also. So this would be familiar, this would be familiar to James and his audience. They would understand what it meant to draw near to Yahweh. But although that it's initially spoken to about the priest, it's still a general concept for everybody, the nation of Israel. They understand what it means to draw near to Yahweh, to to come near to Him, to come into His presence. They would, I, th- I think of a lot of a lot of places in the Scripture. Even when Dave, David's running from Saul and goes to the temple and he gets Goliath's sword and the priest asks him, he says, are the men clean? And they say, hey, we've been traveling for three days and, and uh, they've, they've not been with with, uh, with women. The reason he asks is because you're fisting to draw near to Yahweh. You're coming into Yahweh's presence. You're coming to the temple. So when you draw near to Yahweh, this is a common concept that was uh, is very familiar to Israelite people. But before the priesthood was in place, it is said in the Pentateuch that, all, that, that Abraham draw near to Yahweh in prayer. So it seems that the term draw near is for it, anyone who approached Yahweh, broken, humble, and ready to worship. But what exactly does it mean here in James? What does James mean when he says draw near to Yahweh? How do we draw near? I don't think this is referring to just saying, you know, to confessing your sin with your mouth or walking towards an altar in a, in a church setting or saying a prayer or anything like that. I don't think that's what James is talking about when he says draw near to Yahweh. What he's saying when he tells us to draw near, I think, is the same thing that David tells his firstborn son at First Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 9. David tells Solomon right before he dies, he says, As for you, Solomon, my son, know the mighty one of your fathers and serve him with your whole heart and a willing mind. For Yahweh searches every heart and he understands the intention of every thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. I think this is what James is saying here. See, to know Yahweh, seek, seek to worship him, seek to honor him, know him as your Lord, know him as your father, love him as your father. Serve him as your owner, your boss. For crying out loud, just draw near to Yahweh. That's what he's saying. Come near to him. Come near to him. Seek after him. Find him. Look for him. In Second Chronicles chapter 15, the spirit of Yahweh has come down on Azariah, the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Asa. And he said to Asa, he says, Asa and all Judah and Benjamin, hear me. Yahweh is with you when you're with him. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. And if you abandon him, He'll abandon you. So Yahweh desires to be sought after. He wants your all, your total commitment. One more example real quick. Remember the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. A man had two sons, and the youngest of the two said, Dad, go ahead and give me all that belongs to me. So the father did. He separated what they were to inherit, and the young man left with what he owned. The older son stayed, and he worked for his father, never missing a beat, while the young man went off and squandered all of his possessions away. Well, after the young man's inheritance ran out, he went to work for one of the citizens of the country where he was staying, and he tended the man's pigs. And at the time, there was a famine in the land and not much food, and the boy just wished to be able to eat at least what the pigs were eating. So one day, he's thinking to himself, and he says, Self, even the lowest hired slaves at my father's house eat better than this. So instead of dying of hunger, he swallowed a little bit of his pride, 
And he said to himself again, I'll get up and go to my father's house and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and earth in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. Make me like one of the slaves. And so he did. He goes home and he confesses his wrongdoing and he cleaves unto his father. He draws near unto his father. And what happens? Well, the story goes on. While the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. That's what his father was filled with. He was filled with compassion. He ran, he threw his arm around his neck and he kissed him. I think the Greek really kind of renders that he fell on his neck. Well, that's what James is telling you to do. Run to Yahweh. Draw near to Yahweh, and he'll draw near to you. Just like the prodigal son, just like the long-lost son, run to Yahweh and let Yahweh fall on your neck and kiss you. He loves a, he loves a humble heart, an obedient child. The, this parable is a perfect exhibition of true saving faith and Yahweh's wonderful love for his children. Back to James, let's read the second part of verse 8. It says, Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded people. So in our recipe for salvation, first we submit to Yahweh in sovereign lordship, and then we draw near to Him with commitment to adoring worship. But the second part of verse 8 says, Cleanse your hands, sinners. Why hands? Why does James tell us to cleanse our hands? Because the hands are the symbol of action. The symbol of behavior are deeds that can be seen being done. Let's look at Isaiah. Turn with me to chapter 1, starting in verse 15. We're going to read through 20. Isaiah says, When you lift up your hands in prayer, or Yahweh says this through Isaiah, When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered in blood. Wash your hands, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Seek justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come let us discuss this, says Yahweh. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they will be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Repent of your sins, Israel. That's what Isaiah has to say. Cleanse your hands, you sinner. Remove your evil deeds from my sight. And then, though your sins are like scarlet, I'll make them white as snow. See, when your heart submits to Yahweh and your heart commits to draw near to Yahweh, the heart will automatically recognize its sin and immediately start to be broken for it. It will cause you to beg forgiveness to be clean. That's what confession is. And Yahweh says, if you turn from it, remove the evil deeds, cleanse your hands, I will forgive you. But there's more. It's not just hands that James mentions. Look at the very last part of verse 8. It says also to purify your hearts, you double-minded people. James is not only concerned with what you do on the outside with your hands, but he's also concerned with what drives these actions, your heart, which is on the inside. Your wicked hearts, he says, get rid of your evil desires, your evil intentions, your evil thoughts, and purify your evil hearts. The sinners can't just long to be delivered from sins in the past. He has to desire, to desire a new heart. He has to desire a new way. Consider what the psalmist says in Psalms 24. In verses 3 through 5, David says, Who may ascend to the mountain of Yahweh? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not set his mind on what is false and who has not sworn deceitfully. 
He will receive blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the mighty one of his salvation. That's who gets it. The one who has the clean hands and the pure heart, not the one that, that can do the works on the outside, but his heart is still wicked. We must have clean hands, pure actions on the outside, but we must also have pure intentions on the inside. I think James is echoing the words of the prophet Jeremiah when Jeremiah was trying to get Israel and Judah to repent. Jeremiah chapter 4, and starting in verse 1, it says, If you return, Israel, this is Yahweh's declaration, if you return to me, if you remove your detestable idols from my pre- my presence and do not waver, if you swear as Yahweh lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then the nations will be blessed by him and will pride themselves in him. For this is what Yahweh says to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up the unplowed ground, do not sow among the thorns. Circumcise yourselves to Yahweh, remove the foreskin of your heart, men of Judah and residents of Jerusalem. Otherwise, my wrath will break out like fire and burn with no one to extinguish it because of your evil deeds. Get rid of your detestable idols. Break up the unplowed ground and stop sowing in the thorns of the world. Then he says, once you have cleansed your hands of the sin, circumcise your heart for Yahweh. Don't just cleanse your hands. Circumcise your heart for Yahweh. It's not just our outward actions that have to change. It's our inward intentions as well. Purify your hearts, what James says. So back to our recipe for salvation. First, we submitted to Yahweh with our sovereign will, or to Yahweh's sovereign will. And the devil, by default, he must flee. He doesn't have a choice here. Then we draw near to Yahweh in worship and in truth. Next, we repent of our outward sin and we purify our inward wickedness. Let's see what's next. And reading in verse 9 and chapter 4 of James. It says, Be miserable and mourn and weep. Your laughter must change to mourning and your joy to sorrow. Be miserable. Mourn and weep. Wait a minute. That might be what we're thinking. Hold on a second. Why, why do we have to mourn or weep? I thought we were just drawing near to Yahweh and we're moving our sin. Why must we weep? Because that's the gospel. That's the gospel message. When someone's truly repentant, when they're truly sorrowful for their sin, they will weep. They will cry. They will hurt. They'll feel miserable. They'll cry and beg for forgiveness. They'll be ashamed and hurt. They'll feel right next to death for how they have sinned against the sovereign Lord. James is not denying anybody the joy of the Christian life. He's not doing that here. He's just saying before you can have that joy, you must experience that broken pain. When's the last time someone shared the gospel with you and told told you that you needed to be miserable, you needed to be sorrowful for your sins, you needed to hurt, you needed to cry, and you needed to tell Yahweh that you're sorry that you've sinned against a mighty Creator? I don't think I've ever heard it that way. I don't think anybody's ever told me at a Baptist church or this church, anybody. I think I was in a different place here. I'm not saying that people wouldn't teach that here. But I don't think anybody's ever told me, let me cry with you. Let me plead with you because you're a wicked sinner. You're in need of a a mighty Savior. And And you need to repent of your sins. And you need to be sorrowful for them. And you need to cry. And you need to beg Yahweh to come into your life and to heal you from the wickedness that goes on within you. Instead, somebody just preaches the cure. They say, just believe in Jesus, and that's all it takes. That's the, way it comes. that's the way the gospel's taught. It's never taught that you're a wicked sinner destined for the lake of fire. That's where you're headed. It's never taught that way. Nobody ever says, hey, you need to fall down on your face, just like, just like Isaiah told, the, told Israel. You need to fall down on your face and cry. Cleanse the blood from your wicked hands. Beg Yahweh to forgive you. But nobody ever, nobody ever teaches it that, that way. But it's the truth. 
When Yahweh shows you your sin, you'll weep. It's because there's a reverential fear that comes when when your heart has been made pure and your sin has been brought to light. There's an uncontrollable burst of sorrow when you realize that you have been trampling in in the mud the most precious gift that could have ever been given to man. You're just stomping the blood of Yeshua over and over and over. You're just burying it in the mud because you won't do anything about it. There's no way around it. When you repent, you must be miserable. James says in the latter part of verse 9 that your laughter must change to mourning and your joy to sorrow. That's just an illustration of what repentance looks like in a person that's truly sorrowful. Remember the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. It says, Blessed are those who, are, who mourn, for they will be comforted. What Yeshua's teaching right there is, is the one that mourns, it's the one that's mourning over his sin. Those are the ones that mourn, not the, not the man that didn't get what he wanted that day. He's talking, he's talking about a man that's sorrowful for his sin. He's broken in his heart. He says, blessed is he that mourns, for he will be comforted. Francis Fuller wrote this quote, To repent is to accuse and condemn ourselves, to charge upon ourselves the desert of hell, to take part with God against ourselves and justify him in all that he does against us. To repent is to be ashamed and confounded by our sins. To repent is to have them ever in our eyes and at all times upon our hearts that we may be daily in sorrow for them. To repent is to depart with our right hand and eyes, that is, with those pleasurable sins which have been dear to us as our lives, so as never to have to do with them again. To repent is to hate them so as to destroy them as things which by nature we are wholly including to do. For we naturally love and think well of ourselves. We hide our deformities. We lessen and excuse our faults. We indulge ourselves in the things that please us and are mad upon our lust and follow them, though to our own destruction. End quote. And he's right. That's exactly what repentance is. Repentance is to turn from what you know is wrong. To hate it. Not just to walk away from it, but to hate the fact that you did something that is so grotesque towards an almighty creator. People, when you sin and repent and are truly sorry, you don't have a choice but to weep. You will weep. Remember what Peter did in Mark chapter 14 and verse 72 after he denied Christ? After the third time, the rooster crowed, you know, I think. What does it say he did? He says he wept. He realized that what Christ had said about him was true. He realized his sin. When you realize your sin, you'll weep too. When you trample the blood of Christ underfoot and realize it, you don't have any choice but to be sorrowful for it. The reason lost people don't weep over their sins is because they don't care. That's the reason lost people don't weep. You see a man that doesn't cry about his sin and how he sinned against Yahweh, that's a good indicator that he doesn't care about himself or he doesn't care about Yahweh. He doesn't care about the state that he's in or where he stands in relationship with, with our Lord and Savior. The reason preachers don't teach that we should weep is because it doesn't sound fun. It doesn't bring people into the church. If you win people with hot dogs, you're going to lose them with hot dogs. You tell somebody that they need to weep and cry and it don't sound good to them, they're going to leave. They don't want to hear it. That's the reason preachers don't preach it. It doesn't tickle their ears. Tickle their ears fills up congregations, but it doesn't create any saved souls. It doesn't win any for the winning team over here. You're not, you're not building a good team. You're building a lost team. You can't share the gospel with someone if you don't teach them to repent. And if you don't repent of your sins, you can't be saved, brothers and sisters. That's the, that's the bottom line. So let your joy turn to sorrow. Realize your sinfulness and feel ashamed for the way you've mistreated the sacrifice that was made for you. 
Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to sorrow. Let's read verse 10. Verse 10, it says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Humble yourself, what does that mean? Well, it means just that. It means to bring about humility on yourself. Humble yourself. To see yourself lesser than you are being compared to. Whatever you're being compared to, you should see yourself a little bit lesser than that. That's what it means to be humble. In other words, know that you're nothing and that Yahweh's everything. Humble yourself and know that you're just a sinner in need of help. I'm reminded of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. The Pharisee boasts and he, he's real proud and he says, Yahweh, thank you for not making me like, like these people. I pay a tenth of my tithe and I do everything that I'm commanded to do, basically. He's just, he's just, boast, he just boastful. He said, just, just thank you for not making me a sinner like, like these people. And the sinner that stands afar off, he doesn't even lift his eyes towards heaven, but he, he leaves, leaves his eyes face towards the ground and he the Bible says he smokes his chest or he beats his chest. And he says, Yahweh, forgive me a sinner. Forgive me a sinner. That's humble. That's humble. We're nobody. We are absolutely nobody. Remember the parable of the lost son we were talking about just a minute ago, the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. By the way, this is a perfect example of how a lost soul is saved. If you want a, if you want a perfect example of how somebody is broken and then humble, and then comes to the Father, and how the Father receives him. If you want a perfect example, the, the parable of the lost son is, is a good one to look at. The son was proud, and he was ready to go and be on his own, but when he left, he squandered all his inheritance. And in order to come back, it took a lot of being humble for him. I'm sure he didn't want to come back and tell his dad, Hey, Dad, everything that you give me, all the inheritance that you give me, I just squandered it away. I've been, I've been feeding a man's pigs. But he realized that he had thrown away all that his father had given him. And it would have to be miserable to own up to that. But he swallowed his pride, and he went home, willing to be a slave in his father's house. He went back, hoping that his father would take him in as a slave and accept him. But guys, just like James says in verse 10, humble yourself before Yahweh, and he'll exalt you. This father did the same thing. As hard as it probably was to come back and to be willing to take the position of the slave, the son did it. But the father saw him, and he was filled with compassion. Yahweh, give his father compassion. He ran through his arm around him, kissed him on the neck. We talked about it earlier. And that had to be humbling as well, not only for the son, but also for the father. See, the father had compassion on his lost child because he humbled himself and he asked for forgiveness. That's what the son did. And just like it says in James chapter 4 and verse 6, he gives grace to the humble. And so did the father give grace to his son. And so, will our Father do that for us today if we only humble ourselves? Fall on our face. Realize our wickedness and beg for forgiveness. When Yahweh says He gives grace to the humble, that's equivalent to in verse 10 where it says, Humble yourselves and He will exalt you. The grace and the exaltation, they, they run parallel. When Yahweh's grace is applied, you will be exalted and you can rest assured in that. Guaranteed. Remember, brothers and sisters, Yahweh resists the proud. So break yourselves and fall at His feet. Beg for His grace and His mercy. It's better you you humble yourself than He do it for you. I can promise you that. Rest assured in this, if He humbles you, it will work a whole lot better than you doing it. The problem is, it's a, it's a whole lot more, it's a, it's a lot rougher. I don't know how many people in here have ever, ever been humbled. I'm sure most of us in here have at least one time or another. When Yahweh humbles you, it sticks. 
it sticks. And it's a good thing, it's not a bad thing that Yahweh humbles you, but it's a whole lot easier to humble yourself like James says right here. Humble yourself and let Yahweh exalt you. Let him do the part of, ex- of exalting you. You humble yourself if you can. So in closing, I just want to remind you of all the elements of our recipe for salvation. What must we do? First, we submit to Yahweh and to His sovereign will. We turn our lives over to Him. We give it all to Him. We just say, hey, you're king. The banner that flies behind me is going to say Yahweh on it. He's my Lord. I don't serve any other, any other mighty one. When I stand, I stand for Yahweh. Just like David says to Goliath, who is this uncircumcised heathen? That blasphemes the name of Yahweh. Who is he? Who is he? Second, once we submit to Yahweh's will, the devil, he must flee. He has no choice. We serve Yahweh to a, to a degree that, that, that um, the adversary, Satan, whatever you want to call it, he has no hold on us. No hold on us. Then we draw near to Yahweh and worship him in truth. We come just like the just like the prodigal son. We come and we fall at his feet begging for his mercy. We draw near to him. We love him. We want to be part of him. We want to be so intimate with Yahweh that we have no choice but to just love everything about him. That's what it means to draw near to him. And then we repent of our outward sin and we purify our hearts on the inside. And we do that by just confessing that, that uh what we've done is sinful and, and just nasty in the eyes of Yahweh and we don't want to be we don't want to be that person. And by Yahweh's grace and mercy and through Christ that lives within us, we can do all things. We'll overcome. We'll overcome the, the wickedness in our heart. We'll overcome the, we'll be washed of the wickedness that's on our hands. But first we, we cleanse our hands and then, and then we purify our hearts. And James also says that our laughter must be turned to mourning and joy to sorrow. Just be broken for what you've done. Realize that you're a nobody and that you've sinned against us a holy mighty one. And it is a big deal. It's not a joke. It's nothing to be taken lightly. Realize that He is the creator of heavens and of the heaven and the earth. He created you and He'll take you out just like He put you here. He's something to be reckoned with. It's not a this is not a game. And lastly, we humble ourselves. And we do all these things as a result of receiving His greater, all sufficient grace that perfect gift that Yahweh gives us. We do that because He gives us the grace. Yahweh, Father, we thank You so much for Your patience, Your kindness. Father, we thank You for Your only begotten Son and all that He's done for us. Father, we couldn't stand here today had You not been patient with us. Father, if You only give us what we deserve, we can't stand here today, Father, but Your patience is is unreal. Father, Your grace is unmeasurable and, and Your love is it's like no other. Father, we give you praise for that today. We love you so very much. Help us to be humble. Father, help us to be humble so that you may exalt us. Make us uh, make us what you'd have us to be. Father, I pray for your mercy on our soul and, and uh, your kindness to us, Father. But we love you and we're so thankful for you. We're thankful for all that you've done. I'm thankful for this word that you've given us through the, the epistle of James. And Father, I thank you for our elder brother, Yeshua, and I thank you for his brother, James, and Father, it's just a, it's been a wonderful journey through this through this epistle, and I just pray that you'll continue to grow me and grow the people in this congregation. And Father, I just pray that you'd help us help us to be what you would have us to be. Maybe w- what we do will will honor you in our daily daily walk. Father, I pray that the lives that we that we lead will exhibit that of Christ. Father, I ask all these things in your precious and holy Son's name. Amen. Amen.